Looking for a unique gift? A new piece of art for your collection? Or a signed copy of my book? Head on over to FelixEddy.com. That's www.felixeddy.com. Thank you. Hi. My name is David McLean, and I am the creator of this podcast. This podcast is called Four, which means you may want to start with Podcast One. That's just how it works. After that, you might like to go to two, and then three, and then you can come back here again. It's kind of a sequential thing, but, you know, hey, maybe not. Maybe you just want to give this one a shot. Anyway, thanks for listening. The news is next. Hi, y'all listening to WXYZ live from the island of San Tempo, and this is the Time Traveler's News and World Report. Time traveling news and information for the discerning time traveler from many timeline. I'm Fergus McCartney, and today's approximate aggregate date is the 11th and a half of E May 3202. Now, here's the post apocalyptic report. Hurricane Xerxes is forming roughly a thousand miles to the west of San Tiempo right now, with the storm generating winds of over 200 miles per hour. It's expected to graze San Tiempo on Thursday morning. Since most of the planet is underwater, hurricanes can now reach speeds of up to 500 kilometers an hour. The island force field should protect the island just fine, but town officials are recommending avoiding the water until Friday afternoon. San Tiempo Senior High School senior Teresa Whiteforce has received a scholarship to Cambridge University to study Latin and the classics. Although Terry Spence are quite proud, the scholarship was granted by the graduating class of 1375, meaning that Terry would need to attend university sometime during the 14th century before women were allowed at Cambridge. Teresa and her parents are pursuing both robotic and non-robotic solutions to the issue. Viking Owen Longbeard was arrested at San Tiempo Airport yesterday for trying to board a park stealth bomber claiming that it was his longship and he was bound for Valhalla. He was charged with being ridiculously publicly intoxicated even by Viking standards, a Class B felony under San Tiempo law. Finally, everyone here at the station would like to give a shout out to the group of ancient Egyptian astronomers visiting San Tiempo this week. Let's hear it for the sun god Ra! That's the post-apocalyptic report for this morning. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. And now we present the infinitely spiraling clock. The continuing story of one man lost in time. father's heart. You would have thought that it was more difficult than it was to take Spring, well, pretty much anywhere. But Spring had always handled it easily. First, she put on a long, flowing black wig that cascaded down her shoulders like a waterfall. 
Then she adjusted her wings carefully so that they draped down her back. She put on a long, dark cloak and a pair of sunglasses to cover her golden eyes. After that, if anyone asked why she looked the way that she did, she simply told them that she was in a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream in the West End. Since there is always a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream in the West End, this strategy worked frighteningly well. It was two weeks before school, and Spring was indulging her goddaughter with a shopping trip. It is not widely known, but fairy godmothers love shopping. That's why nearly every story with a fairy godmother in it involves some kind of shoes. Shall we get a curry? Spring suggested after they came out of a shop with yet another bag. Sure, Helen mumbled. They found a little restaurant, sat down, and ordered something spicy. Spring wanted very much for Helen to have reached the age when lunch in an adult sit-down restaurant is a wonderful thing, but it didn't seem like Helen was there just yet. She seemed distracted with her eyes focused firmly on the floor or the table or anything, really anything other than Spring. Spring was undaunted, though, and while they waited for their food to come, she grilled Helen on the traditional end-of-holiday questions. So, are you excited about going back to school? Spring asked. I guess so, Helen replied. Helen was old enough to have reached the age where saying yes was not cool, but smart enough to realize that Spring wouldn't want to see her roll her eyes and say no. Do you know who your teachers are? she asked. Not exactly, Helen admitted. I have a pretty good idea, though. I'm in the same school as last year, so I know who they are. I just don't know exactly which ones I'll have. Are you looking forward to seeing your friends? Spring asked. Yes, Helen agreed, although she sounded like she was looking forward to seeing them in the same way that you might look forward to eating ice cream after having your tonsils removed. Spring, in the tradition of adults trying to extract pleasant conversation from children who would rather be audited by Nazis, ignored Helen's rudeness and changed the topic of conversation slightly. I didn't get back to San Tiempo much this year. Did you have a good summer? Yes, Helen nodded. Her eyes seemed to be trying to crawl under the table. Spring looked at her goddaughter and hoped that she was conveying affection and not concern which she was sure would only push Helen further away. Helen looked like the subject of her summertime activities was something that should be classified code word secret, but Spring couldn't imagine why. Usually, tween island life largely consisted of swimming, staring at the island's cultural oddities, and occasionally listening to her mother give a lecture on the nighttime sky. Was there a boy, maybe? Helen's mother would say that it was too soon for that, but of course it wasn't. Spring tried to coax out just a little more information. Did you go swimming? Sure, Helen said. Did you visit the museum? Spring asked. A few times, Helen said. Did you read any books this summer? Spring asked, starting to get a little exasperated. Helen knew that Spring loved to read more than anyone she knew and had been anticipating the question. It sounds harmless enough, but telling the truth in this case was opening a can of worms. Helen wanted to open that can of worms very badly, but that didn't mean that she didn't understand that worms were not usually considered to be an appropriate starter 
when waiting for a curry. I read the ones in Feature King, Helen admitted. Spring's response surprised her. You should read the Mists of Avalon, Spring replied. She sounded almost critical as if Helen at the age of 12 had picked the wrong thousand-page novel to read. Why? Helen asked. Is it more accurate? No, Spring said, but it's better written. But he's real, right? Helen insisted. King Arthur is real. You told me how Dad met him. I did, Spring agreed. And he is real, but the truth of his life has been lost in time. The research of Helen's summer months was coming bubbling out of her mouth like she was a lawyer who had just discovered her client was innocent of murder. Was the time with the dragon the only time Dad ever met King Arthur? Helen asked with a sense of urgency in her voice. Spring's answer had no urgency in it at all. You should ask your father, she said. He was just here, wasn't he? Helen rolled her eyes. He doesn't want to talk about it, she groaned. Spring nodded. I imagine it will be hard for him. Another diner walked by their table and tapped Spring on the shoulder. I love your costume, the woman said with a smile. Spring nodded. I'm in midsummer in the West End, she said. Who are you playing? the woman asked. Peas Blossom, Spring answered with a smile. Helen took upwards of a millisecond to silently acknowledge that perhaps this was not the best subject to bring up in public before plowing on. Why, he went to Camelot, that's amazing. Why wouldn't you want to talk about that? Spring sighed. Spring sighed. Because of your mum, she explained. Because the subject of Camelot is very painful to her. This surprised Helen. Why would Camelot bother Mum? That didn't make any sense. Why? she asked. Because to your father, Camelot is the past, present and future, Spring explained. That, Helen stated plainly, doesn't make any sense. Have you ever wondered where your father goes when he's not at home? Spring asked. The question stopped Helen's train of thought like a bridge that was out. Of course, she had wondered about where her father went when he was gone, but she didn't like to talk about that either. When she was very young, she hadn't really thought about it much. Her father had a job that involved leaving for long periods of time. It wasn't unheard of. Later on, when she thought about it, she had asked, but her father had usually given her silly answers. One time he told her that he was a spy. Another time he told her that he had been away at sea. Usually when she asked, he would quickly redirect the conversation towards some sort of game they were playing or the book they were reading, or he would just suggest that they go out for a walk in the park. Or if it was summer, head down to the beach. Her father was a kind man. He was charming and full of life, but compared with all of the fantastic people who had already showed up in Helen's little life, her father was, well, the most ordinary of the bunch. Certainly he was older than most of her schoolmates' parents, and he tended to dress a little more formally than the other adults she knew, but neither of those things were really telling. 
Only an old picture on the dining room wall of her father standing next to her mother while dressed like a World War I pilot implied that there was anything about his life that was larger than you might think. Even the photo didn't really imply very much. It could have been taken at a costume party, but it did seem to line up with Spring's story about the dragon. The story of the dragon was a great story, but even so, it had never occurred to Helen that whenever her father left, he might have been going anywhere as fantastic as Camelot. Dad goes to Camelot, Helen asked, her eyes wide. Why? What's he doing there? He got stuck there, Spring admitted. It was a long time ago, and even though your mother and I finally found him, he's never been able to leave it all the way behind. Your mother has always been afraid that your father's heart is in Camelot, no matter how much he loves her. Is it? Helen asked. Does he love Camelot more than he loves us? As soon as Helen had asked the question, she regretted it. However, there wasn't any taking it back. It hung out there now like a balloon in a comic strip. Helen held her breath and waited through what was probably the longest half-second in human history before Spring answered. Of course not, Spring said with a smile. But if you understand what happened to him, you could see why it would eat away at your mum's sense of self-esteem. Why? Helen asked. What happened? The waitress brought their curry and Spring and Helen tucked in. After a few moments devoted to cuisine, Spring continued. Do you remember a few years ago when I told you your father had several names? She asked. Sure, Helen replied. But you never told me what they were. We're getting to that, Spring clarified. To start with, though, your father didn't go to Camelot straight away after he landed in the Dark Ages. He spent a few years on his own, which must have been hard. When did he go to Camelot? Helen asked. Well, there was a tournament, Spring began, and you have to understand there are some parts of this story that your father feels guilty about. I have to warn you, telling the story of Camelot isn't like telling another story. How so? Helen asked. Telling the story of Arthur involves getting wrapped up in it, Spring explained. Before this is over, we may see some things that you would not believe. Eventually, Helen would come to see her father's story as a pretty good homily on the nature of regret, how regret was not simply a matter of sorrow, and that there was always some desire and understanding mixed in with it. Still, no amount of philosophy was going to make the truth easy to hear, even if her father had lived a life of spirited adventure. Helen would remind herself that her father had done his best. A phrase that never comes up unless your best wasn't good enough.
The tourney. The hammer came down on the anvil with a deafening clang and the shape of the red metal in between the two changed just slightly. Keith Quick had been a blacksmith for a little over three years now and had learned the patience required to use heat and force to change steel. He could make an old lump of iron into almost anything these days. You just had to give him some time, and time was the one thing that he had in abundance. Time and heat and force and steel had changed him as well. He was stronger than he once was, physically stronger, but also quieter and more at home with his own thoughts than he had once been. He enjoyed whiling away the hours shaping and crafting necessities for the locals, even though they still tended to treat him with a certain degree of suspicion. Keith Quick wasn't the young man he'd been in America in 1938, but he wasn't old either. The hammer came down again and again. A small twinge of pain went through Keith's left shoulder. Keith put the steel into a pool of water and a cloud of steam rose into the air. He lay down the tongs on the workbench and then turned around. His left shoulder tended to hurt more than the right at the end of the day. His right arm was his swinging arm and his left held the steel, which meant that it absorbed the blow. It was hard work and had taken its toll on his body, although not always in a bad way. The steel had molded him, and making it bend had made him hard. He took the iron out of the fire and admired his work. He hadn't noticed the man standing in the doorway. The man was tall and lean and appeared to have a limited understanding of the concept of a haircut. Everything about him from his head to his shoes looked dirty. His pants were black, which was surprising, but they were old and worn, as if he was the youngest son of some lord who had disowned him. He had a thin sword that hung from a small piece of rope on a leather belt, and a grim expression that made him look like he was hungry. Once Keith finally noticed him, it took him several moments to realize that he was staring at Jack Cassidy. Hello. Keith greeted his companion brightly. The greeting came out of his mouth awkwardly. It was the first word of modern English that he'd spoken in a couple of years. These days, even his thoughts were in Latin. Jack Cassidy stared down at the piece of iron and managed to produce the slightest smile. What is it? he asked. A sword? Keith Quick smiled and put the steel down. A horseshoe, he said, grinning wildly. The two men shook hands. Although they had known each other only briefly, they were the only time travelers within a solid century of this place and were bonded together by the memories of things that weren't. Keith invited Jack into his cottage. Apart from the fire, which would certainly keep the room warm in any weather, the cottage was relatively sparsely decorated. A small bed in the corner lay less than two meters from the work area, implying that Keith had a wonderful commute, but very little to do with his free time. A bare table and two chairs sat above a window and looked like they were the proud possessions of a man whose father had bragged about owning one of those fancy new wheels that all the celebrities were talking about. Two cupboards in another corner might have held dishes or clothes, maybe both. In the center of the room was the blacksmith's hearth, and in the remaining corner was his work table, the bucket of water and his blacksmith's tools. It was a simple existence. 
When Keith Quick was a young boy, he'd been delighted to listen to the radio in the evenings and had even enjoyed a weekend afternoon at the cinema. As a young man, he had learned about time travel and had seen the world of computers and beyond. Now he was hoping to save up to buy a book, and it was probably a silly pipe dream. He'd heard stories there was a place you could buy one in London, but he would probably have to sell his horse when he got there to pay for it. For the moment, he could focus on another simple pleasure. For the first time in a long time, he had company. Keith got out the pitcher and two goblets and poured two cups of wine. The two men sat and drank for a moment in silence. Although no four-star restaurant would ever serve the kind of wine that Keith Quick was able to purchase locally, drinking was one of the few pleasures that seemed to be universal. They sat for a few moments, drinking and relaxing in silence, before Keith spoke. Where have you been? he asked. North, answered Jack. Scotland, then Denmark and Norway. Keith nodded. Nice, he said, without really sounding much like he thought it was. What were you doing there? Searching, Jack said. For what? Keith asked. Away home, Jack admitted. Keith took a swig of his wine. I'm afraid you're not going to find another time traveler in this timeline, no matter where you look. It was not my goal to find time travelers, Jack said. Keith raised his eyebrows. What were you looking for? he asked. Jack emptied his goblet into his mouth and then turned the cup upside down on the table. Magic, he said simply. Magic? Keith repeated. Magic, Jack said again. Why magic? Keith asked. Because I don't understand how time travel works, he admitted. I don't understand how I ended up here. But if magic can make a sword that can't miss or make a dragon breathe fire, then magic can get us home. Only there isn't much magic left in this world, and what's left seems to be dying. Keith frowned. A pity, he said. Is that what brought you back here? Jack took the liberty of turning his goblet over again and pouring himself another glass of wine. I came back for the tournament at Camelot. The winner is made a knight of the round table. Keith nodded. And you figure that's something magical? Jack grinned wickedly. If nothing else, maybe I'll find the Holy Grail, and then I'll just live forever. That way I'd have to make it home eventually. Keith took a sip of wine to cover his personal feelings. Last I checked, Leodegrance had made sure that we weren't welcome at court, he pointed out. Jack nodded his head knowingly. He passed away last year. I figure if I can win, they'll have to take me, and if I lose... I don't have to take my helm off. Keith tried as hard as possible to shrug casually. I suppose that might be true. But what did you come to me for? Do you need a sword? Jack shrugged. I have a sword, a good one too. Although I have no doubt that the locals would insist that you make the very best, he said, turning his glass over and tipping it forward as a gesture of respect. That isn't what I need. What then? Keith asked. I don't have time to make a suit of armor. 
Jack gave an embarrassed shrug. Actually, I was hoping you would come and root for me, he admitted. It's a week hence, and Camelot is less than a day's travel from here. You seem to have embraced the culture better than I have. It's difficult enough entering the lists. I could use someone to cheer me on. Besides, the tourney is quite a festival. When was the last time you celebrated anything, really? There was a pause, and then a silence, and then a pause again. I'll see you at the tournament, Keith said. After Jack Cassidy had left, an old barn owl flew into the cottage and settled down on the rafters. You again, Jack said, giving the owl a hairy eyeball. Well, I suppose you keep the mice away. Keith walked over to the bed and sat down upon it. From underneath the bed, Keith pulled the only thing that he owned that was worth anything of real value. It was a suit of chain mail. He had made it himself. As far as he knew, it was the only one of its kind in existence. It was polished, and it shimmered in the firelight. He couldn't bring himself to sell it. Even if he tried, no one would buy it anyway. It was funny how little interest people had in things that are beautiful. Jack had said that he wanted to get back home, and that he thought that magic was the key. Keith figured that he might be right, or at least it might be worth a try, if you were interested in that sort of thing. The truth was that Keith had given up on the idea of ever seeing the 20th century again a while ago. When Keith was growing up, many centuries from now, he had always been led to believe by his elders that you could chase your dreams and climb every mountain. Now as a grown-up, Keith had discovered the glories of giving up. For one thing, it cleared out a whole big section of your day. Keith had never rested nearly as well as he had since he had realized that he would never see the future again. Instead, he had chosen to embrace the present as best he could, content himself with making horseshoes and leaving everything that he knew behind. True, a part of him was miserable at first, but it was easier to move forward. It was why he was warm and well-fed and why Jack looked haggard and hungry. That was why Jack was entering the tournament. Keith was sure that no matter what his friend had said, Jack was trying to find a way to suck whatever last little bit of magic he could find out of this world and get back home. The pipe dreamed that somehow they could tap into some kind of magic and harness it to get back to San Tiempo, back to Alice. That wasn't going to get Keith to saddle up and charge at other men holding a lance. Not that anyone had ever asked. There was, however, one thing that would. Three years ago, Keith Quick had sat at the round table. He had just sat there for most of a day. He had sat at the round table and kicked his feet up on it like he didn't have a care in the world. The plain and simple truth was that Keith Quick didn't care about getting back to the future. He wanted his seat back. Of course, Jack would look at his betrayal for good reason. It was his idea, and Keith was going to steal it, pure and simple. He should have said something while Jack was there, and he hadn't. Of course, if you're stuck at the bottom of the heap, what else are you going to do? And now, and now, random acts, random acts. 
Tooth of toad, ear of frog, a raven cries out in the bog. Eye of bat and wing of mouse, there's something crawling in your house. An ogre's toe, a cry of the dead, the sound you hear is in your head. A spider's brain, a hangman's nail, try to stop us and you'll fail. Witches crawl among the dead, witches crawling in your head. Witches brew with earth and fire, tell me the truth and I'll call you a liar. Boiling oil, a dash of spice, something naughty, something nice. You'll admit if you are wise, I'm not unpleasing to your eyes. We know all you see and hear in every forest far and near. We're on the mountaintops and in the bogs. We're under treetops and over logs. We're the ones who are casting spells. Our lives are where a nightmare dwells. In the water and in the air, there are witches, witches everywhere. This This has has been been a random act of poetry. You're welcome. Hi. My name is David McLean, and I am the creator of this podcast, and I am going to do my very best not to say um, not even once during this segment. I would like to thank my daughter for making a special appearance on this particular episode. I'd also like to thank my guest stars, the washing machine and the weird loose connection in the microphone. I had said there was going to be possibly attorney in this episode. Uh, in fact, the chapter is called attorney. There isn't because, well, it was going to run for an hour and six minutes if I did that. And that seemed like an awful lot of your time to take up. So we'll do that next week. Thanks for listening. The Random Act of Poetry is from a book I wrote called Witches, Witches Everywhere, and The Infinitely Spiraling Clock is a sequel to a book I wrote called The Time Travels Resort and Museum. It is available from my publisher, Mirror World. It is also available from my wife's website, felixeddy.com. That's it. Thanks. Have a good day. <laughs>